Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for July 12th, 2023. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and if you're feeling hungry today, it is National Pecan Pie Day, unless you live in Canada, in which case it's probably National Butter Tart Day. You should totally try those things as well. Um, we are joined by Mr. Stephen Foskett, as always. Stephen, welcome to the show. Welcome, Tom. So I come from the other side of the, the divide where they're called pecans or pecans. And that's totally okay because there's a different perspective on everything, just like we see here on the rundown every week. And we have a lot of great news coming up, including a discussion about everybody's favorite open source operating system that we'll get to in just a bit. Uh, but first, we have some sad news for uh, people who are a fan of small desktop systems because this week Intel announced that they are no longer going to be selling their wildly popular next unit of compute or NUC, small form factor machines. This comes on the heels of Intel selling their server business to MyTAC, which you may remember that we covered on the rundown back in April. The NUC has been a very popular platform for home labs, as well as production environments with large numbers of remote branches, such as chain restaurants. Um, per an email sent to Intel partners, they claim that they are gonna be relying on third-party manufacturers such as ASRock to continue to make the smaller boards for those machines, but they won't be doing it themselves in the future. Now, Stephen, you saw the writing on the wall here. Is this more of Pat's cost-cutting measures? Well, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and we did see the writing on the wall, to be honest. Um, I think most people in the industry might have seen the writing on the wall here with the decision, as we mentioned back uh, in April, to uh, wind down the server business and hand it over to MyTAC. Um, just like the server business, the NUC was an example of Intel basically building a client device out of their core assets. Um, and, and just like the server business, the NUC served as a uh, sort of a goal, a golden example of what you could do with Intel technologies. Uh, on the server side, they used it as a way to develop and proof uh, all sorts of server technologies, also to prototype and, and basically push them out to the market. And they did the same with the NUC. Um, you'll remember that these came with uh, alongside the Ultrabooks back in the sort of early 2010s when Intel was uh, fighting back against Apple's use of their low voltage, low powered um, CPUs in things like the MacBook Air and the Mac Mini. Uh, Intel saw that there was an opportunity to bring that technology to the PC side of the market. But it's interesting, uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the PC side of the market because a lot of people took one look at these little boys and they said, you know, that doesn't look as much like a desktop to me as it does a brilliant little server. So a lot of people, including yours truly, went out and bought these suckers and used them for things like VMware vSphere hosts clusters. Um, we uh, basically, uh, many of us uh, had labs full and full of these things. Um, one of the uh, popular hacks to it uh, that I did was to um, install a second ethernet port uh, using the mini PCIe port on the uh, motherboard. Uh, people did all sorts of things like that to basically press these into use as servers. Well, uh, at the same time as that, there were companies out there that said, you know, if we need a lot of compute power, we should just take these bare NUC motherboards and gang them up and build clusters of them. And so that happened. Um, I am, ended up uh, buying uh, 30 of these suckers um, from a company, a hyperscaler that stopped using them. 
and now have all the nuts I can eat. Um, these things are incredible little devices. And over time, Intel has moved the NUC from being what was essentially a Mac mini clone to being a real force in the industry. Uh, we saw gaming NUCs, we saw high performance NUCs, we saw new form factors. We saw all sorts of uh, remarkable innovation coming out of Intel around these client CPUs and client devices. And they were taken up all over the place. And one of the big areas that they were taken up was at the edge, as we've discussed at Edge Field Day on our Utilizing Edge podcast. And with our Utilizing Edge podcast co-host, Mr. Brian Chambers, uh, he's talked quite a lot about how his restaurant, Chick-fil-A, uh, his employer, uh, uses these things. They use clusters of Intel NUCs in their stores as a high availability um, application platform at the edge. These things are everywhere at the edge. In fact, we were making jokes at Edge Field Day that we should have just called it Nuck Field Day because everybody was talking about them. And now, well, they're not quite gone, but Intel's walking back from it. Um, according to a statement uh, from Intel, uh, they've decided to stop direct investment in the business unit and to pivot their strategy to enabling ecosystem partners. In other words, Intel's pretty much done with this and they're hoping that some of the other companies that are manufacturing these devices, some of them you've heard of, like HPE and Dell and Lenovo, others that you may not be as familiar with, but are selling tons and tons of them, uh, they're hoping that they will kind of pick up the, 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 the baton and, and keep running with this small form factor device. I hope they do too. But I think that this really sells short one of the reasons that we all love the Intel NUC. Essentially, the, the best thing about this device was not so much the form factor and the price. Now, those were great. But the thing that a lot of us loved about this device is that it was so well-designed, well-made, and well-supported. Intel didn't cheap out on these things. They shipped with the good Ethernet controllers. They shipped with the, uh, the good storage devices. They shipped with um, you know good power and cooling, and they were well-supported as well. You can still download drivers uh, and BIOS updates and everything in a very well-organized, um, easy-to-access, easy-to-use site. You can still update them. They're not loaded with weird junk. They're not loaded with uh, peripherals you don't need. Essentially, they're everything you need and, and, and want in a little PC. And that's the thing that I'm going to miss the most. Frankly, that's what a lot of us miss about Intel motherboards. That's what a lot of us miss about the Intel server platform as well. These things were not weird corner cases. They were not filled with bloat. They were not trying to nickel and dime you. They were basically just good, well-designed, well-supported systems that you could use for years and years. And that, that is why people were so excited about the NUC. And it is a sad day. I decided to wear a, a black shirt in mourning today because, as you heard, the NUC is at an end. Cloud network visibility just got a lot less hazy thanks to our friends at Kentic. The company announced last week that they're offering the ability to see into Azure infrastructure, such as firewalls, uh, VWANs, and express routes. The enhanced capabilities of Kentic allow you to understand your path the traffic is taking, interrogate that traffic across multiple branches and core networks, and tag traffic to ensure proper delivery and classification. 
These features allow Kentic to continue to be one of the leaders in enterprise network traffic visibility. And Azure support was one of the big requests at our cloud field day and networking field day presentations. Tom, uh, what do you think of this? I think it's a great move for Kentuck overall because it gives them something that they've needed very, very much. They can now see into Azure. They can collect data from Azure and they can use it to kind of build out their um, their larger visibility portfolio, if you will. Uh, if you've ever seen Avi Friedman talk about this, and if you've ever watched one of our great presentations from Cloud Field Day or Networking Field Day or even our Service Provider Networking Field Day, you'll know that Kentuck is very data-driven. They need the information to be able to report on the status of you know, uh, services all over the place. They they kind of grew up as a, an alternative to Thousand Eyes, and then Thousand Eyes got bought by Cisco. And now, if you if you want something that's not owned by Cisco, Kentuck is kind of your where you need to go. And so, for the customers that are relying on this, they get to see a bigger picture of what's going on inside of Azure. I mean, yeah, we all know we can go to the dashboard, but uh, you know, like Amazon has proven, if you host your dashboard on US East One, sometimes things just don't go so well. And this gives customers a real-time ability to see if there's any you know issues in certain uplinks or things like that, that that maybe Azure won't be reporting on. But more importantly for Kentic, this gives them the capability to report on cloud weather patterns, if you will, which is something that makes it more important for non-Kentic users in you know the the space because now I can say, hey, there's something weird going on inside of Azure these services could be affected. How many times have we seen uh, an outage in, in AWS or GCP or even Azure or even slowdowns cause massive um, reverberations through the rest of the community because, oh, it turns out that that application that I use every day is hosted in Azure. It's not down, but it's definitely not working the way that it should. So I'm on the phone trying to call my people, trying to figure out what's going on. In reality, the real problem is, is that the provider is having an issue. So I think Kentig is going to be a more trusted, more reliable source of these kinds of data in the future. And that only happens because they're able to get in and collect that information. And I would not be surprised to see this continue to expand across all clouds in the future so that, that Kentig effectively becomes a cloud visibility platform. All right, Stephen, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory's El Capitan supercomputer is set to become the world's most powerful system, even as your average hyperscaler cloud builder and AI startup are developing AI systems that may outperform traditional HPC machines in low precision AI training work. These AI systems, such as the one being built by Inflection AI and the rumored GPU uh, cluster that's being built by Microsoft for OpenAI, are expensive, but offer significant FP16 matrix math performance. Although El Capitan looks like an amazing accomplishment, um, are we nearing the end of laboratory dominance and benchmark supremacy for supercomputers? Yeah, we're in an interesting space when it comes to supercomputing. For the longest time, supercomputers have been the exclusive domain of national labs. And some of those national labs in some company, countries have been willing to run benchmarks on their systems and sort of uh, duke it out for dominance in terms of who's got the biggest baddest system. And um, in the uh, article from uh, Next Platform that we're going to link to, there's actually a really great in, uh, history uh, look of some of these supercomputers that have come out, uh, you know, what kind of uh, performance they delivered, and, and importantly, how much they cost. This is an important factor here. So essentially, Lawrence Livermore is getting a very big 
very expensive, very, very fast supercomputer here built around AMD technology. Uh, this thing is going to be awesome, as we talked about, uh, you know, the sort of normalized uh, peak performance that we're talking uh, for this thing um, is about, uh, you know, 2.3 uh, exaflops, maybe, um, maybe uh, 1.5, maybe something else, uh, you know, we'll see. But the, the, the important thing is that they're getting a uh, exascale uh, supercomputer cluster here um, at some pretty decent prices. And I think that one of the more interesting things that they talked about here in this article as well is comparing it to um, a supercomputer that IBM installed at LLNL back in 2005 called ASCII Purple. That occupied literally the same room uh, that this guy's going into. Um, it, uh, this new system, El Capitan, is going to be 23,000 times faster than ASCII Purple. It's gonna suck down six or seven amount, uh, times the power and it's going to cost 3.9 times as much, roughly, according to their calculations, but 23,000 times faster. That's the kind of performance gains we've seen with supercomputers at these national labs. But, you know, it's hard to say if this is the fastest supercomputer on the planet, because, as you can imagine, intelligence agencies aren't sharing their numbers. Uh, a lot of uh, international uh, installations aren't sharing their numbers. And frankly, a lot of systems are just too busy being used to run benchmarks on them. And that applies to a lot of these commercial supercomputers as well. Um, you could say that AWS or Azure is a supercomputer. You could say that Google's uh, whole infrastructure is. Uh, you'd probably be wrong, but you could say that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't supercomputers in the cloud. And a lot of that is being built around AI training. As I've talked about here on the rundown and in other uh, venues at Gestalt IT, my belief is that AI training is increasingly going to be a shared cloud service because it doesn't really make sense to invest all that money and all that time building out these massive, massive training systems for your own use whenever you need them. It makes a lot more sense to just use something in the cloud temporarily for training and then take that model back when it's done. Now, uh, it's kind of an apples and apple or, or oranges comparison here because AI needs different compute infrastructure capabilities than normal supercomputer applications. Um, it's a little hard to compare them, but I think that we can safely say that the hyperscalers are building incredibly large, incredibly powerful AI supercomputers. I think we can also safely say that the national labs by dint of being able to say, hey, it's experimental, it's education, it's going to you know, help uh, polish your image, have gotten really good deals from companies like Intel and AMD on the building blocks for their supercomputers. And that's let them go much bigger than they would have been able to afford normally. And I think it's safe to say that in the future, none of these things are really going to hold up anymore. So I frankly don't see a future where we're going to see uh, El Capitan um, uh, exceeded by a conventional, well, conventional as they stand, uh, laboratory supercomputer simply because the hyperscalers are sucking up all the product they can get. Uh, the national labs are less likely to get great, um, you know, uh, cost uh, for their next one that they build out. Uh, a lot of the stuff is going to be doing different stuff that isn't, isn't really com comparable. And um, a lot of the stuff is going to be kind of behind uh, uh, walls of a corporation or a government that just doesn't want to share numbers. So uh, El Capitan uh, may go down in history as the world's fastest supercomputer, and it may be the last. 
world's fastest supercomputer. We'll see. Microsoft has taken action against malicious drivers by revoking their signature in the Patch Tuesday update. The discovery of over 100 different malicious drivers, sometimes dating back to April 2021, prompted Microsoft to issue a severe advisory uh, in collaboration with Sophos. Many of the malicious drivers had been signed using Microsoft's Windows Hardware Compatibility Publisher certificate, while others were signed by companies based in China. The drivers pose a threat to endpoint protection, including rootkits capable of monitoring network traffic and disabling user account control features. Well, Stephen, I think the problem here is that we're starting to see a really um, clever way of getting around some of the protections that Microsoft has put in place. You may recall that Microsoft has effectively said that drivers that are in kernel space now need to be signed. And everyone's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're making us do this. This is such a big deal. And I'm going to have to go through all these other things. Yeah. And then you see what they're capable of doing. And when Sophos found these things, um, they were pretty insidious because my favorite part is, is that some of these companies, which there is a list in the article if you want to see, and they all have similar sounding names, um, were able to submit um, drivers to be certified with these certificates that look very harmless. In fact, they almost all are harmless because that's what you got certified on. But as soon as you got the certificate, you were able to apply that certificate to a less than harmless driver. And like you said, some of them were your typical run-of-the-mill rootkit stuff. Let's just get in at the kernel level and we can do whatever we want. But I thought that the ones that were specifically targeted to do endpoint um, destruction, endpoint uh, removal, uh, you know, like turning off Microsoft Defender, uh, I thought that was an even more insidious way of doing it. We're going to use an, uh, a ver verified driver that won't trip Defender to disable Defender to be able to put more crap on the system in the future. And I think that that is a way that a lot of, well, let's say, nation state backed trained people are going to start, start operating in the future. And remember how we've been talking on the rundown for the last several months, years, whatever, about why it's so important to get things moving as soon as those signing keys leak, you know, like when the same thing happened to Android, could you imagine what would happen if this was on a mobile phone and we didn't have this kind of security tools that we have for PCs to be able to root this stuff out and find out what's going on? I don't have to imagine because I can guarantee you that if this is happening in Windows 10 and Windows 11, it's happening on an Android operating system too. And I'm sure that there are people who are trying to do this on a lot of other operating systems that we use and rely on on a daily basis. So props to Sophos for finding these. A hundred sounds like a lot, but I think they're all kind of variations on a theme. And I think that what it's ultimately going to end up being is kind of a wake up call for people that we need to put more stringent restrictions in place. And we also need to be interrogating all of the device drivers that we see coming from organizations, not just the ones that were able to be submitted to get the signing keys. All right, Stephen, Influx Data, the parent company of Influx DB, is in hot water today because they violated Stephen's first rule of storage, never lose the data. The issue stems from them shutting down two regions of their Influx DB cloud service. That would be AWS Sydney and GCP Belgium. They got the axe back on June 30th. You'd think people would know what was going on. Influx Data reportedly sent emails to the affected customers on February 23rd, April 6th, and again on May 15th. They even updated their webpage to note that the services were going to be discontinued in these regions. Want to guess what happened? The customers that were still on the service didn't move off their data by the time the deadline hit, and there's a problem now.
Belgian customers might have gotten lucky because Influx Data is trying to recover the last 100 days of their data from backups. The folks in Sydney, now that's gone for good. It's in the outback somewhere. Stephen, how could Influx Data have presented this entirely foreseeable disaster? Yep, entirely foreseeable. Now, I first have to say, you know, uh, my condolences to uh, the folks at Influx Data, uh, but more my condolences to their customers who were affected by this. Frankly, this is not a new story. Um, I will just say I worked years ago at a cloud service provider that after I left, decided to shut down um, its activities, its storage services. And it, again, it violated Stephen's first law of, of storage, do not lose data. Um, they, just like Influx, notified customers, they put up alerts, they sent emails, they um, you know, changed the documentation, they did all these things. And then just like Influx, they decided on the day, well, let's turn this down, turn this off and get rid of it. And they did. And then the screaming started. And that gave rise to what we call the scream test, which is uh, when you're shutting down a service, the best way to find out if anyone's still using it or if uh, it's truly able to be deleted is to shut it down and wait to see who screams. But the corollary to the scream test is to have the data in your back pocket so you can bring it back and say, oh, you were still using that. Well, here, let me migrate you forward. As an example, I'm just going to bring up another uh, recent scream test that le left me and many others screaming, and that was Google retiring their uh, Universal Analytics uh, version 3 and going to uh, version 4. Um, Google sent a lot of notifications. They produced a lot of documentation about how to get yourself set up with the new version. Uh, one thing they didn't provide is any kind of migration forward, and uh, then they shut it all off, and this left a lot of websites in the lurch. Um, I will just tell you that a lot of web websites are lacking statistics on July 1st. And uh, apparently some of them didn't even, uh, some websites even were non-responsive because they were so integrated with Google Analytics. I heard a re report that an airline was unable to sell tickets that day because they were still using the old Google version. Just like Influx, Google notified people, they sent emails, they updated their website, but just like Influx, people didn't do it. This happens, this happens all the time. You need, if you're gonna shut down a service, you need to provide this kind of notification. You need to provide this kind of alerts. You need to have some sort of forward migration capability. Ideally, you should just sort of make the migration happen before you set stuff off. I mean, wouldn't it have been cool if Influx had just moved this stuff from the Australia and Belgium region to a different region? I mean, they're multi-region, they're in the cloud, they could have done that. Um, and, and then maybe the customers might have screamed that their data is no longer where they thought it was, but at least the data is not gone. And at the very, very, very least, don't delete the data because that is going to leave your customers screaming. As we discussed on June 7th, Tom, uh, private equity firm Vector Capital has successfully completed its acquisition of Riverbed Technology, a provider of secure networking and performance products for the enterprise. With the completion of this transaction, Dave Donatelli, a former EVP uh, from the cloud business group at Oracle and somebody you may be familiar with, uh, has assumed the role of CEO, while John Taylor, previously the CFO at MarkLogic, is returning 
to set Riverbed on a new course. This acquisition marks a new chapter for Riverbed, which has acquired a number of other products and technologies in its quest to become a one-stop shop for enterprise application acceleration. What's your take? So I think it's interesting. First of all, for everybody out there, you have to remember there's two phases to an acquisition. There's when it gets announced, when everybody talks about it, and then there's when it actually closes, which is usually months later. And this happened to close in Q3. That's just the way that this stuff works. Um, secondly, um, new CEO time. So that means that that uh, Vector Capital obviously has different ideas in mind for the company than the previous CEO, which is fine. Dave Donatelli is a pretty good guy. I mean, he's held EVP positions just about everywhere. So he he knows what he's doing. I think, though, that this is kind of a an inflection point for Riverbed because we've talked to them many times at Tech Field Day, and they've always kind of talked about a lot of their hardware platforms. I mean, if you think all the way back to when, some of their very first presentations, what do we hear about? We hear about their steelhead devices that are on site. Uh, we hear about the, uh, you know, the fact that they're doing WAN acceleration. Honestly, their first biggest problem was they missed the boat on SD-WAN. They could have been the king of SD-WAN overnight with one simple decision, turning on that functionality on all their steelhead devices, but they didn't. And so they were constantly playing catch up. And then they kind of pivoted into visibility and analytics as a secondary product line, which showed a lot of promise. The last time they presented at Field Day, a lot of people were very excited about that. They, they saw this as a capability that Riverbed could expand on. The problem, of course, is that when you're owned by a venture capital firm, which they were, they were owned by Tama Bravo and the Ohio uh, or Ontario Teachers Credit Union investing arm, which I didn't know was even a thing. Um, you eventually have a runway that you're going to run out of because you have to service your debt. Like this isn't a startup where you're going to burn through your cash. You literally owe these people money on a regular basis plus interest. And that's ultimately what sinks so many companies today. I mean, that's the reason why Toys R Us went out of business. They just couldn't service their debt. And so I, I hope that what's going to end up happening is, is that Riverbed is going to focus on the things that they need to focus on and that they're going to be successful in selling them uh, once they kind of get out from underneath this Chapter 11 stuff, which it looks like they're going to. What I don't hope is that it's going to mean that Riverbed's going to be chopped up and sold off into parts, which we have seen before, because that's a quick way to earn cash and pay down some debt and basically make the investors happy so that when they get back to something that looks reasonable, they either spin it out on its own or sell it off to another company kind of quietly behind the scenes. Because that's the other thing, too. Once you've been taken private in these kinds of deals, you are no longer required to report any of this stuff to the SEC until the sales are made and finalized. So a lot of times these companies can change hands very rapidly without anybody on the backside knowing anything about it. So good luck to Dave Donatelli and the rest of the Riverbed crew. Hope to hear great things from you in the future. And maybe we can get you back to a field day so you can uh, talk to us about some of the cool stuff that you're working on. All right, Stephen, we had one story we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at uh, this week. And it turns out that it has everything to do with everyone's favorite open source operating system. Uh, the Linux community is abuzz with controversy once again because IBM Red Hat has put the source code for Red Hat Enterprise Linux behind a paywall, which we have previously talked about. Oracle has weighed in on this conversation this week. They have emphasized the commitment to Linux freedom, offering open access to binaries and source code for the Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible distribution, Oracle Linux. 
On the other hand, Sousa Linux is taking a little bit more of an offensive move by forking Red Hat Enterprise Linux and investing millions in developing their own compatible distribution that's free from restrictions. The battle for supremacy is heating up. Each company is vying for dominance, championing their own, their own respective vision of what openness and innovation should look like. Now, I want to take a quick minute here, Stephen, to kind of catch people up because this is kind of interesting the way that everything's falling out. So you may recall way back on June 28th, so like two weeks ago, what ended up happening is, is that Red Hat, um, which is now owned by IBM, restricted access for the source code for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, leaving CentOS Stream as the only available public repository of the code. That impacts a lot of decisions or a lot of distributions like Alma Linux and Rocky Linux, because what they're effectively saying is, unless you play by our rules and sign up and agree to our terms, we're no longer going to give you access to the source code for you to build your distributions. Now, while this is all happening, the, in, the Linux community has completely freaked out about it and they're very upset. And there's been a lot of pieces that have been written about this. And now we're starting to see the companies making the moves. And there is a lot of things that are going on here. But Stephen, you know, you were one of the people who first reported on this story. I kind of wanted to get your take on like Oracle champion of freedom now. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to try to weigh in on the legality of what Red Hat has done, except to say that it's probably legal considering that nobody has been sued out of business and, and IBM has lawyers and they probably checked on this stuff. Um, my understanding is that uh, essentially the open source uh, license requires that anyone who gets uh, binary access to software also has to have access to the, the source code. And that's pretty much what Red Hat's doing if you kind of read between the lines. I don't think that they're doing it the way that people thought they would be doing it, but essentially Red Hat's closing, I mean, the binary is only available to people who are subscribers or, um, you know, basically have a, 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 an account and um, and they're restricting the source code to those same people. Um, so it seems like what they're doing is legal, but it certainly isn't um, uh, in, in keeping with uh, the expectations, let's say, of the open source community. A lot of people out there have long used Red Hat as their preferred Linux distribution. Um, and, um, you know, even in the face of challengers, uh, you know, those of us who were on more on the Debian side, um, a lot of us are using you know, Ubuntu. Um, there were certainly lots of SUSE believers out there as well. Um, but over time, uh, you know, there's been some standardization in Linux, but still, um, you know, the, the flavors are different enough that you're not going to want to use a different distribution entirely. Um, Oracle was one of the companies that had a uh, Red Hat-like uh, uh, Linux uh, that they offered as well. And so, um, you know, given this situation, it's no surprise that uh, Oracle was interested in emphasizing that their uh, Linux, Oracle Linux, would remain, um, well, uh, free as in speech, I guess, um, you know, and that they would still support uh, releasing open source and so on. Uh, they certainly are taking the opportunity to tweak their competitor, IBM slash Red Hat, over this move. And they're encouraging people to uh, switch to Oracle Linux. And, you know, honestly, um, that probably leaves a lot of uh, open source people with an upset stomach. But Oracle's been doing a pretty good job with MySQL. And uh, Oracle Linux is pretty good. 
Um, unfortunately for Oracle, so uh, is Ubuntu. So Sousa. So a lot of people have, uh, you know, not made that switch. Um, but that being said, it is kind of funny to see Oracle uh, poking them a little bit. Um, but now we've got some news from Sousa, huh? Yeah, Sousa has decided that they're going to work with Rocky Linux and they're going to create their own fork of the distribution. And I got an email from the company that handles Rocky Linux, the owner, if you will. And they were basically saying that, you know, we're committed to creating a bug for bug um, copy, for lack of a better term. And I thought that their way of doing it <laughs> feels a little Rube Goldbergian, but it's still pretty ingenious. Like what they're going to do is they're going to download container environments and they're going to do paid for spot instances. And they're going to use those to extract the source code for Red Hat Enterprise Linux to use in updating their nightly builds and things like that. It is legal. It feels weird. Like it, it's like saying I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a copy of this book so that I can read all the things in the book and then write a synopsis, even though the company says that I'm not allowed to do that. I mean, you kind of are, and and Red Hat does not want to run afoul of the GPL. Um, GPL says that if you offered this code for free, it has to be available for freely download. Now, Red Hat's saying it's still technically free. We can just register it. And I think it's, it's kind of a weird dichotomy here because, Stephen, as you mentioned, there have been a lot of Linux distributions over the years. And, you know, they, they rise and fall in the community. Uh, and there's, you know, some of them are more geared toward commercial development and things like that. Um, some of them are a little bit more home-based. I mean, I can remember when Fedora was the darling of everyone before it got bought by Red Hat and turned into a distribution channel. But I, I think that the to me, the real weirdness here is that I can remember a time in the distant past when IBM was the champion of Linux. Uh, if you go all the way back to the SCO Linux dispute where they got taken to court for a decade over all of this stuff and how IBM was actively trying to defend the trademark and, and, and root out the whole Unix Linux split. And, and like, I remember, was it the Grok law blog where like, you know, waited with beta breath for the judge to release stuff. And now IBM is the bad guy. I mean, what, what happened? It, what happened is, is that eventually when you take ownership of a product, you see that you have to institute controls on it. And I'm not defending IBM's decision. Lord knows we would get roasted if I did. I'm saying that I see where they're coming from as the steward of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, because this is not the first time that Red Hat has tried to do this. If you think back a couple of years with the CentOS thing, they really are trying to put some guardrails in place. The problem is, is that most people who work with open source at least not the, the true champions, look at it as free as in freedom, free as in, you know, you know whatever, liberty, not free as in beer. Everybody wants it to be free as in beer. I just want to go out, I want to download the stuff and run it on a PC at my house and not have to pay for it. And Red Hat is saying, well, you can do that, but we don't have a business if nobody pays for it. So I, I hope that this project doesn't end up creating these weird dividing lines in the community because we have seen those before. And if you remember, SUSE was owned by Novell at one point. Novell had designs on making their own Linux and that really never came to fruition. So are we just going to basically end up being kind of like Red Hat versus the world or something else? Yeah, I, I, I want to kind of 
take a big step back here too. Um, I, I feel like uh, these, well, I'm, I am a veteran of the distribution wars. Um, I was one of the people who compiled that original Linux that was posted to Usenet way, way, way back when I was in uh, an undergrad at WPI. Um, I remember one of my roommates coming in and saying, hey, we should try to compile this new uh, Minix style kernel and see what happens that this guy created. Um, I was a veteran of a lot of the distributions, Yggdrasil, uh, all these other uh, Linux distributions that came over the years. Um, now it is sort of kind of coming down. And, and frankly, I think that the thing that's being forgotten here, whether things are legal, whether things are a good business decision, a lot of this doesn't matter as much in the cloud and the open system, open source environment, when frankly, um, nobody's really paying for Linux distributions. Remember, the, the year of Linux desktops kind of came and went, didn't it? Um, the truth is that I, it looks to me like a lot of stray dogs fighting over scraps here, because truly, um, who really cares about Linux distributions anymore? Um, I know that people do because, um, frankly, as a, as, a, as a user, as a uh, developer, if you're in the DevOps space, you need to know what package manager you're running. Um, you know, Ubuntu with their snaps and, and, and apt and RPM and all these kind of things. That stuff matters. Um, but honestly, you know, we're in a Kubernetes and Helm chart world now. Um, do, do we really care what Linux operating system is being run under there? And are we really going to pay anything for it? Um, in a lot of, a lot of times the answer is no. And I think that that's one reason, for example, that uh, Ubuntu has gotten a lot of traction. Um, I think it's another reason that, you know, if you look under the, under the hood of a lot of containers, there's a lot of people using Arch Linux and things like that. Um, the reason is because they kind of don't care anymore. And, and, and frankly, that's my opinion on looking at this story from the outside. Uh, IBM's going to IBM. Uh, Red Hat, uh, the Red Hat, their, their business model, their name has become an adjective for the business model that they're in. You know, oh, you've got a Red Hat business model. That doesn't mean that they are Red Hat. It means that they're trying to give away the open source and then sell support and services around it. Um, you know, Red Hat's going to Red Hat. Uh, IBM's going to try to help Red Hat to Red Hat even better slash worse, depending on your perspective. Um, SUSE is going to SUSE, you know, uh, Canonical is going to canonical. Everybody's going to do their thing to try to extract um, profit out of what is essentially, uh, unfortunately to all of them, a commodity, which is the Linux operating system. And the Linux operating system is going to be increasingly commoditized by things like containerization and Ansible and Helm and, 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 and to the point that, frankly, whatever. Um, and, and, and to me, that's kind of how I'm looking at this story. I, I'm saying... Um, you know, it, it is, is it good that SUSE is going to help um, Rocky Linux and invest all this money to have a, a hard fork that's going to be compatible with Red Hat so that you can continue to operate Red Hat with a free as in beer? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, SUSE. I'm really glad you're spending that money and investing that. Um, you know, is it good that Oracle is reaffirming their commitment to open source? Yes. Um, is it good that there are other alternatives that don't involve this and aren't part of this battle? Yeah, because ultimately, I think that's where this all ends up. Yeah, I think you're right. And this is a story that's going to play out over the next few weeks. So, you know, we're definitely going to be covering it when they're exciting new nightly builds for us to uh, to take a look at. But uh, 
it's not the only thing we have going on because there are a lot of things that we have coming up that we wanted to tell you about. The The most exciting one for me coming up is going to be Networking Field Day 32. That's going to be held July 26th and 27th in uh, Silicon Valley. We're very excited to be talking to Broadcom. Uh, we're hit, getting a, a brand new company to the event, Nile. Uh, they're uh, one of the most requested companies I've had in, in recent memory. And we've got a couple of other companies that are hanging out out there. Uh, pay attention to techfieldday.com because we, uh, we'll, uh, we're updating that site on a regular basis with uh, delegates, with uh, presenters, and with the schedule of the event. Um, right after that, in the, uh, the, the cool summer days of August, Stephen, you've got something going on that's pretty exciting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're heading back to VMware Explore. Now, I know I keep trying to say VMworld, but uh, VMware Explore, uh, we've got VMware coming and uh, presenting uh, NSX. Uh, we've got a couple other companies that we're almost ready to announce that are going to be there, including a very exciting new, uh, new phase for Field Day. And uh, we've got some other stuff going on there as well. So if you're coming to VMware Explore, please reach out. I would love to hear with you and I'd love to connect with you at that event. I'm also really excited that I will be uh, headed to other events this year, including Flash Memory Summit, uh, Storage Developer Conference, where we're going to hold in association with our Storage Field Day event, uh, the OCP Summit. We're going back there, and we're going to have Cloud Field Day the same week. I'm also looking forward to AWS reInvent and, uh, yes, uh, hopefully KubeCon. You're right. There's a lot of exciting things happening out there in the industry, and we're going to be telling you all about them each week on the rundown around 1230 Eastern Time. Um, if you have anything that you want us to mention, please make sure you tag us. We, well, a lot of our community members are great about uh, showing stories that are kind of important. In fact, the Intel Nux story was one that we pulled from our community yesterday. And uh, after the sad trombone music, we knew we had to cover it here on the rundown. But um, we are always going to be uh, listed on our website at gestaltit.com uh, with articles, including show notes and links to uh, the uh, information that we pulled from. We also are releasing on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video, as well as in podcast form. If you'd like to listen to us when you're mowing the yard or out for a run or just sitting on a train and you don't want to listen to the people around you, listen to Stephen and I or one of our great co-hosts that rotates in when Stephen or I are busy at events or, you know, have other things going on. Um, we love and treasure each and every one of you in the community, and we appreciate your listening. Um, if you would leave us a rating and a review on the various platforms, uh, you know, even it's just a thumbs up on, on the uh, YouTube channel. That way it gives people an understanding of what we do here and, and what we talk about, and hopefully we'll encourage them to tune in and subscribe and get their weekly dose of the news on the rundown. It's just like breakfast cereal. You got to have it all the time. We'll be back next week with more great news. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.